All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming out this evening. Um, so last time I did medieval theology, or sort of the interesting period from the fall of Rome to, you know, around 1,000 or 1,100, 1,200, whenever you want to officially get the kickoff of the Renaissance going. Um, if you were to look at the world from a purely rational outside view, you would pay zero attention to Europe during this period. Because really, I mean, everybody, should you call it the Dark Ages, whatever, maybe yes, maybe no. You could certainly call it the Unpleasant Ages. Um, but certainly one of the places that were not dark during this period was the, uh, the world, the Dar al-Islam, the House of Islam. It is the part of the world that uh, Islam had conquered and was just spreading at an amazing rate. Um, and so if you are looking from the outside at this period of the world from about oh, 800 to about 1200, you would look at Chinese civilization, you'd look at probably the Maya, but certainly one of the things you would want to study is the Islamic Golden Age, so-called Islamic Golden Age. Um, and, and that's what we want to focus on tonight. I think centrally, people often ask me, so the, where does something like the Renaissance come from? Right? And it's like, you know, nothing, nothing like this is, has a single cause, and there's always something somewhat ineffable about these big movements, these sudden springs of, of creativity and science and knowledge and human uh, capacity that, that erupts in the world occasionally. But if you said, what is the single most important cause of the European Renaissance? It's the Golden Age of Islam. There's, I don't think that's even arguable. It is, it is the source of so much of what was to come and what we know as the Renaissance. But we tend not to look at it, which is odd. So tonight I want to look at it as much as possible. But please note these dates. Um, it starts roughly around 800, a little bit earlier than that. But it's when the Abbasid uh, Caliphate transfers the capital of Islam from the Umayyads, who are sort of the successors of Muhammad, uh, Mecca, Medina, uh, and Damascus were the capitals there, and they move it to Baghdad. There's, now, something had been in Baghdad, but they basically build this as a new city. This is going to be our capital. It's going to be showy. It's going to demonstrate the power and capacity of Islam. This is the idea. So they, they had switched, they had sort of switched dynasties had taken over the empire, um, and they, they get things rolling in Baghdad. And it pretty much goes on continuously till about, I mean, the, where did these movements end? Nobody knows, but traditionally you kind of say, okay, in 1258, Baghdad is sacked by the Mongols, um, and they burn the libraries and the books and generally wreck everything. And it fractured the House of Islam, essentially. It broke up what had been a culturally cohesive uh, unit, and it was really struggled to ever rebuild from there. So it's... It, the sack of Baghdad did not cause the decline, but it was a symbol of the fracturing that took place. Um, and it's also a symbol of you don't want Mongols visiting, right? They just sort of wreck, they wreck your civilization. They weren't big builders, the Mongols. They were big wreckers. Um, but uh, so, so if this is the single biggest cause of the Renaissance, which I think it probably is, what's the single biggest cause of the Islamic Golden Age, right? So it just keeps going back chicken and egg, chicken and egg. Um, and I think one important aspect of this, there's several which we'll go over, but one that you have to keep in mind all the time is up until this point in world history, 
The notion of general literacy, that more than 1% of your population should ever learn to read anything for any reason, was either nobody there thought of it, or they actively thought it was a bad idea. So the, the Bible was not translated into the vernacular languages in Europe systematically for a long, long time, um, because generally the people either didn't care or they thought it was a bad idea to do that. You didn't want the, the peasantry to have access to the text, so you didn't teach them to read, and you didn't translate the book into a language they could read. All of a sudden, you get this incredible development, the people of the book. The Islamic world worships as much as anything the Quran itself. It is absolutely central to understand this religion. And so it puts a very, very powerful emphasis on literacy. If you're going to be a good Muslim, at some point you want to learn to read the Quran. And wherever Islam spread, they promoted learning Arabic because that was going to be the lingua franca of the Islamic world. So if you were going to be anybody and you wanted to do anything important, you needed to learn Arabic which almost nobody spoke, by the way. It was, it was a very narrow, uh, narrow uh, region that spoke Arabic originally, but then it spread everywhere. So it became the lingua franca of the Islamic world, which, as you can see from the map, became quite big. We'll look at that in a second. And wherever they went, they set up schools and trained people and encouraged people to say, look, one of the things you want to do is learn to read. Now this is an, again, it's, it's hard to exaggerate how extraordinary this is in world history, to have a general outlook that it would be a powerful and good thing for as many of your people as possible to learn to read is, it's a brand new development. I mean, maybe a little bit earlier you have that, something like it in some places, but generally speaking, no. And so it's not surprising that there was a big explosion of literacy throughout the House of Islam. And if you look at this map, you can see it's vast. So this is, this is sort of by 900 or 1,000, kind of the heights of the Islamic Golden Age. It spreads from Spain, of course they conquer Spain, Al-Andalusa, um, all the way through uh, the coast of North Africa, through Egypt, through Syria, through Persia, Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula, parts of India, parts of Central Asia. So that, that is a vast, truly huge empire. Uh, begins to rival something like the Roman Empire. Different geographically slightly, but, but that sort of scale is what you have to think of. Um, and one way they did this is by pushing cultural cohesion, by promoting the language of Arabic, again, as a lingua franca. So the cultural efflorescence that you get during this golden age is a byproduct of, and you per perfectly predictable byproduct, of systematically going out and saying, look, we really want to educate people because it will bring people together. What is somebody in Cordoba and somebody in Khorasan have in common, several thousand miles apart, totally different histories, totally different linguistic backgrounds, essentially nothing, ah, until you learn Arabic. And then this entire world of Arabic learning and, and knowledge, and of course the Quran, uh, central to this, is open to you. And then you can communicate, as we'll see, all the way across this. 
So one, it's important to remember that this is an early, if not the earliest massive attempt at systematic literacy. Now they weren't trying to make everybody literate, but the whole culture said, if you can, you should be literate, which is a newish thing because you want to read the Quran. Second, um, when the uh, Abbasids take over and they move uh, the Islamic capital or the caliphate to Baghdad, this is in essence the Persians taking over. So you had the Arabic rulers at the very top, but the entire bureaucracy was literally the same Persian families who had been running the Persian empire for generations. And the Persian empire grows and shrinks, and, but it's been around for a long, long time at this point. So you get this interesting collision of this very strong, powerful, culturally dynamic, physically dynamic, uh, intellectual, religious force coming out of the Arabian Peninsula and melding with a multi-thousand year uh, tradition of civilization, rule, organization, and bureaucracy. And they kind of join forces. But by the way, consciously, they this was not like something that happened accidentally. They're like, okay, we've taken over Persia. Do we kill all the bureaucrats and enforce our rule by direct military force and by importing our own people? Or do we just say, hey, it would be nice if you learned Arabic and you can keep your job? And, and generally speaking, they said, hey, learn Arabic, get with the program, convert to Islam, and you're in, you're in good go. Um, and then later on, there was a big movement to purge some of these families. But in the first couple hundred years, it was a conscious decision to say, hey, we're going to run an empire, and a good way to run it is with these people who have been running an empire for a long, long time. And so they had access to this existing cultural heritage, which was phenomenal in itself. But they gave it a totally new dynamism and a much broader notion of inclusivity. So the notion that everyone is a member of the House of Islam, not just the ruling elite. <coughs> However dubious in practice that was, in cultural conception, it really was, for the times, incredibly egalitarian. You know, sort of, uh, it's like when we look at, at Athens and we go, wow, they were a democracy. Well, you know, maybe 10% of the people, maybe at most, could participate. But for the period, that was ridiculous, right? Everybody said the Athenians are nuts to have that kind of crazy, chaotic democracy, right? Um, same thing here, that, that notion that pretty much everybody is invited, however imperfectly, to participate in literacy and culture brought a cultural efflorescence. Um, so you get this combination of dynamism, existing Persian culture, huge empire, also wealth, money never hurts, um, and, and this impulse towards learning. And so one of the incredible things this produces right away is called the translation movement. And nobody's exactly sure why. There's all kinds of arguments about why you would do this. But apparently the Abbasids got up one morning and said, you know what? Let's translate every existing text, particularly Greek and Roman texts, into Arabic because that would be cool. Um, and you look at a figure like Al-Kindi, one of the first people we'll look at here, an incredible figure. Uh, he ran at what was called a translation circle in Baghdad. And so whole teams of translators began bringing everything pretty much they could find from the ancient world, not least the Greek and Roman texts, but also other ones, Sogdians, uh, um, of course, Persian texts, and translating them into Arabic. Now what's important about this is many 
many, if not thousands, of these texts would have otherwise been lost. What's extraordinary about this, though, is the cost. No one can quite figure out how much it costs per text to be done, but the, the estimates range between a million to two million dollars per book. So if you think they did all of Aristotle, they loved Aristotle, so every piece of Aristotle they could find, they did. And so you just, it was, you know, that's something like $20 million at least. I mean, again, it's hard to make these, translate these sums. Um, but Al-Kindi was an incredibly wealthy scholar uh, and, and because he was translating from Greek and working with teams. So they had teams of scholars translating as fast as they could into Arabic to create beautiful texts and then, because this was not a copy and paste program, they added vast commentaries. And this went on for centuries. So you're getting books that have in the middle of them the complete texts of, say, uh, Galen, the, 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 the important medical authority in the Roman world, Greek-trained uh, Roman world, with another thousand pages of commentary on this, reflection on this. Hey, let's try this. We've tried that. That's not a good idea. And so you get two things happening, at least two things. One, all of these texts are brought up to date, as it were. New people can read them now, because almost no one read Greek anymore. If you weren't in Byzantium, you couldn't read Greek. Um, Latin, not that widely spread, certainly not in this part of the world. And so it's just like translating things into English today. If something is published in Uzbekistan, it's, it's as if it doesn't exist to us unless you have that language. But you translate it into English, and all of a sudden it's brought to this very large world where many people speak it as a primary language, and a lot of other people speak it as a secondary language. Plus, the translators themselves are educating themselves and the people they're translating with. So if you want to translate Euclid into Arabic in, say, the year 900, this is no easy task. This is that you have to both translate it, figure out what words you're going to use that would be the equivalent. But immediately what they started doing is, of course, comparing it to Arabic mathematical texts and writing these sort of collections. Here's the Euclid. Here's what we've been doing for a while. Here's what the Persians have been doing. Let's amalgamate this all in, in bigger mathematical works. And so all of a sudden you get this explosion of not just texts, but you, of, of commentaries on existing texts that take Aristotle and expand on Aristotle, make it more subtle, take the Neoplatonists, argue with them and expand on the Neoplatonists. And it actually launches this Aristotelian Neoplatonist argument that goes on for the next several hundred years in the Islamic world. Um, and, and so that's just one of them. Then you get, so that's Al-Kindi, right? Sort of, he's the figure, if you want to think of one figure, there's many of them, by the way. I mean, trying to narrow this down in any way is just ridiculous. Uh, a second one to look at is uh, Avicenna. Now, this is just amazing. So he's 980, so Al-Kindi was about 801 to 873. So just moving a little more, a little hundred years later, you get Avicenna. So now, by this time, Avicenna has access to many of these translated works. But he is several hundred miles away, if not a thousand miles, from the cultural center of Baghdad. So this is another aspect of this that you have to understand. There wasn't one cultural center. If you were in the House of Islam, that huge map, and you were in any kind of serious court or you had a prince of, of any kind or there was a little money around, you had scholars 
who had access to these significant works that had been poured out by the translation movement. And they're all in communication with each other. Something like the invisible college that would come around to Europe in another you know, 800, 600, 700, 800 years. And so he's out um, in, in sort of the Samarid dynasty, Khurasan, Isfahan, Tehran area. So, so you know, quite a ways from Baghdad, not a huge, but several hundred miles from Baghdad. And he writes probably the most important medical text since Galen, which is a commentary on expansion of and reflection on Galen. Galen got this wrong, he got this right. And he begins to produce just amazing breakthroughs by doing things like, A, they opened hospitals all over the Islamic world. So basically the modern hospital is invented in the Islamic world. Everything that we have today, except for maybe x-ray machines, but the, the system, the idea of a large hospital with doctors and nurses and intake, the notion that you should do comparative studies Hey, we'll give these people some drugs, we'll give these people less, and we'll give these people no drugs. Let's see what the outcome is. Because for the first time, they had access to thousands of patients. It wasn't random anymore. It's like, oh, we have a wing for people who have that disease. We have a place for those. Oh, we've seen this. We've got charts. They start keeping charts. Oh, so we know what's going on. with Oh, they're not progressing. Well, let's do something different. And so, I mean, he's just unbelievably important. As, if he did nothing but medicine, he would be unbelievably important. But he did everything. By the way, most of these people were, we call them Renaissance men, but then, of course, that's wrong, right? You know, that's a, it's just wrong, right? Because they were, they're, pre, they're, they're where the Renaissance men come from. The Renaissance men are people trying to sort of do what these other people did 100, 200, 300, 400 years before them. Um, but he also was a significant commentator of and, and translator of Aristotle and was involved in a whole, basically a live log running battle about what Aristotle means, how he should be interpreted, how he should be read, um, how it relates to Islam, how does it relate to the Quran. Uh, and so this just, uh, plus he did math, math, I mean he did, he did just astronomy, astrology, he did all kinds of things. So next up, um, Averios, uh, who's born all the way again, later, 1126, 1200, so another 100 years later, but in Cordoba, so we're a couple of thousand miles away from Khorasan. And what is he doing? He spends much of his time, besides of course being a polymath and a renaissance man, arguing with Avicenna and Avicenna's works. Because even though they're separated by several thousand miles and by this time by a whole bunch of dynasties, they're in communication. This is the, this is the extraordinary thing. They knew what was going on knew what they thought was important. And so he's arguing with someone who had lived a century before and several thousand miles away. And people thought, yes, that's what you should be doing. Because this is an important thinker who deserves to be considered. So there was this cultural continuity both through time and across immense distances that is extraordinarily rare in, in, in history. And this is one of the core elements of the um, Islamic Golden Age. It went on for a long, long time, and it was really vast. So a lot of people got to participate. Um, so there he is, he's in Cordoba, arguing about how you should read Aristotle, and significantly helping people translate Aristotle into Hebrew and Latin. 
This is where many, many, many of the texts that go on to be central to the Renaissance come from, not all of them. Um, for whatever reason, they didn't translate a lot of Plato. They translate a lot of the Neoplatonists, but not Plato himself. Some, but not all, certainly. And so this uh, press to have these texts available then gets translated into Cordoba, which then, of course, makes them available um, to uh, Europe, which, of course, then seeds one of the significant, but not the only causes, of the Renaissance, the rediscovery of these texts. Well, where did they get discovered from? Primarily, they were discovered from Islamic scholars and their translations. This is why there, uh, um, there's a, a, a book about Epicurus um, that just came out called The Swerve. I don't know if people are familiar with this. And it focuses almost exclusively on the rediscovery of ancient manuscripts from European monasteries. Now, this did happen. That is an important element. But it was maybe 10%, if that, of the texts that just were translated from the Arabic into Latin or Hebrew. Because there they are. You don't have to go find them. They've got them. And they're nice, new, fresh, beautiful copies with commentary, much of which was just copied without um, giving credit <laughs> to the Islamic scholars. Uh, this was so, so powerful um, that Avicenna, for instance, is in Dante's Inferno. He's in that limbo. He was such a great philosopher, they said, well, you can't put him in purgatory. So you got to put him in limbo with all of the heroes from the Greek and Roman world. Right? So, so Dante and all of the other writers of the Italian Renaissance were very familiar with the Arabic text and the Arabic writers. They knew who they were, they knew the text, they knew the translations, they knew where they were coming from. We, we've, we've just sort of forgotten uh, about this significant influence and important seed. So uh, last figure, I didn't put him on here, I, just had to, I, was, I wasn't going to include him because there's just so many people, but you've got to put Al-Biruni on here. Uh, Polymath is a gross underestimation for this guy. Renaissance man, a gross estimation. He's an incredible mathematical genius, um, translated all kinds of works. Um, poetry, of course, uh, jurisprudence, very important. Um, but one of our, one, I mean, it's so hard to narrow it down, but I think it's worth noting that he wrote what is generally considered to be the first serious ethnographic study. Uh, so he was, he was sort of vaguely kidnapped and held on the border with India when one of the caliphate folks was wanting to try and conquer or at least rob India. Um, and so he got a lot of contact with Indian civilization, Indian ideas, Indian Hinduism, um, right around you know, 1,000. Let's just use that as a, as a rough date. Um, and so he decided, he wrote like a, I think it's six or 700 page work on the culture, religion, intellectual temperament, concepts and ideas of Hinduism and just took it dead seriously in the year 1000. It would be hundreds of years before you get another work of comparable seriousness that just says, well, here's another religion. What's at the core of it? What are they thinking? Why? What are they interested in? How does it relate to Islam? Islam the best, of course, no question. But these people seem pretty serious. They must have something going on. I wonder what it is. Let's see what we can figure out for six or 700 pages. Is it in English? It, is, it has been translated. We'll talk about that. Yes, there is a translation existing of this. Um, and, and, so, and he lived 970 to 1050, something like that. And, but so all through this period, and again, there's just 
more and more you can talk about, more and more you can talk, which we will touch on in a second. But it's important to note that these major figures are continuous. There's not one person and another person and then another person. No, it is three or four or five or six incredibly influential scientists, uh, medical people, astronomy, uh, mathematics, of course, engineering, big hydrology movements, uh, just continuously. And we won't even talk about the literature. I mean, wow, were they writing some literature, novels, histories, po poetry, of course, Arabic being primarily a poetic language, heavy emphasis on that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I don't know if it's still on TV in, in, in Saudi Arabia and much of the Arabic world, but like we have like America's Got Talent or something like that. They were, they, the number one show on TV was where people came on and read Arabic poetry or recited it. That was the competition. And it was like the number one show on TV. So you know, it's this it's just the importance of poetry and poetic language was huge all throughout the Arabic civilization. And think of it as a language civilization as I think probably the best way or a, or a very good way to approach it. Um, but again, another aspect of this, and where does this come from? What causes something like the Golden Age? And very similar to what happens in the Renaissance, if you look at the lives of, of particularly Avicenna, Al-Kindi, and Al-Biruni, they lived in a lot of different places. They would travel from court to court to court. If you were a ruling elite or the, or the head of a city or, the, or, or someone aspiring to the caliphate, if you wanted to be anybody in the Arabic world, you had to have literate, intellectual, important people around you. So they didn't really have a job. They would give them job titles like hanger-on or friend of the ruler or you know, uh, royal astronomer or something like this. So they would have some vague title, but it was just you're an important intellectual and if your court didn't have poets and important intellectuals and artists, you were nobody. So you had to have all kinds of things. And one of the things you had to have was these smart people hanging out doing important work. And so there was not one center of learning. There were 50, 100. And it changed all the time as political dynamics changed, families gained power and lost powers. And so, like Al-Biruni was essentially kidnapped by one guy, escaped to another ruler, and then went to someplace else. He got sick of that job and traveled around. When they were young, they tended to move around trying to find a better job and like an opening over here. Sort of like a modern academic, right? Again, you know, not tenured yet, try to get tenure track, hate that school, move someplace else. You know, that, that kind of process. But it's extraordinary, again, it's hard to conceptualize, but in world history, the notion that you would have 50 or 100 cities where someone of, of a purely literary, intellectual, scientific bent could seek work and find it is it's, it's just not common at all. This is extraordinarily unusual. And so there was thousands and thousands of scholars working through this entire period on all kinds of things. Uh, astrology, by the way, being one of them, the ancient world loved astrology above everything else. Roughly speaking, half of the texts from the ancient world are astrological. I mean, this is just what they were interested in. But they did everything else as well. Um, another comparison to give you an idea of the scale of this, uh, it's estimated that the Vatican Library in the year 1500 had about 4,000 volumes. They did a survey at that time, and it a little earlier, they did two surveys and they came out different. So we're just going to say about, uh, about uh, 4,000 volumes. In Baghdad in the year 1000, nobody knows exactly how many, but it was several hundred thousand books at least. 
there were probably 40 or 50 cities in the, uh, in the golden age of Islam that had at least 10,000 books in a library and probably a lot more than that. They also invented the modern library. So they had so many books around that they did what you have to do when you have a lot of books around. You have to invent a library. So they had clerks and they had a way you would go request a book and you'd write it down. The clerks would go find the book and check it out to you and you would sign for the book and then you'd pay an overdue fee, I assume, if you didn't return it. I mean, it was the whole, it was the entire literate library research uh, program. And, and there wasn't one library. In Baghdad, there were a lot of libraries, but other cities thought, well, Baghdad's got a library. We have to have a library, right? Why is there a major university in every American state? Because the other states have a major American university. So we have 50 of them, uh, at least. But every state needs to have at least one. So even if you were the sort of Arabic equivalent of Montana, you still thought, well, we need a university. You know, we might be small, we don't have a lot of population, we're out in the middle of no place, but by God, we're going to have a world-class university, and they built it. And so they, just everywhere, no matter where you were, all of a sudden you'd have these incredibly powerful, important centers of learning. So, you know, tens of thousands of books everywhere. It, it helped, by the way, that they got paper from China and ran with it. So they were producing paper quite early, which makes making books, taking notes, transcribing things, keeping records, much easier. Um, so that was an important, uh, a very important innovation. What's weird is how long it took paper to sort of get into what we would call modern Europe. They just seemed disinterested in it at first. But again, they weren't bookish at this time. But if your culture says you should be literate and you should read and write things, then paper is cool. It's really a good thing to have. Right? And, we, and they keep, if anybody has, has known the promises, uh, promises of the paperless office, right? we keep hearing about the paperless <laughs> office is about to descend on us. I, I just don't think so. The entire history of paper has been if you're literate and you can write things down, you write things down on paper. Uh, so far, we haven't moved to the paperless office. Uh, so a couple other elements here. If you look on the back, this is basically just co copied and pasted from the Wikipedia pages. I just want to give two examples briefly of, of some of the achievements. So Muhammad uh, Al-Khwarizmi, I'm sorry. By the way, that name anglicized is the, where we get the word algorithm from. So if you want to know where that word algorithm comes from, it's this guy. If you, if you mistranslate his name into Latin, you get algorithm. Uh, so we'll just call him Mr. Algorithm. So algebra, arithmetic, Arabic numerals, uh, you know, and when we talk about development in algebra, I mean, these people were working on, they didn't have total solutions for calculus. They didn't have a, a complete system, but they could do about 80% of calculus. They were, they were making huge strides to that. Um, Omar Khayyam, who you may know as a poet, is credited with identifying foundations of algebraic ge geometry, gener general geometric solutions to cubic equations. Uh, you know, his book, on, on algebra, right? Where does algebra come from? Why do we still call it algebra? Why do we have the word alembic in the language? Well, because we just took it from these people. I mean, this is where the ideas came from. And so they said, hey, you want to know how to do math? You talk to the Arabs. Because notice, they also had the Persian tradition, and the Persian tradition also had the Babylonian tradition and the Greek tradition. So if you've got the Persian, the Greeks, the Babylonians, and then you bring these brilliant people in, you're in business, right? And they were in business. Uh, uh, Ibn, Ibn uh, al-Haytham was the first to explain that vision occurs when light reflects from an object and then passes to one's eyes. 
This seems like a trivial, by the way, optics, another huge area. They've massive innovations in optics. Um, first treaties, serious treaties on optics. But one of the things is how does the eye work? This is not an obvious thing at all. And so this was debated for years and years and years trying to figure out is there something in the eye that goes out and then it comes back in? Is it something out? And if you read these arguments, if you read one of the arguments from an early scholar, you'll be convinced by whichever one you read. Because it's so unreasonable to think about light hitting things and then bounce it. But when, when you have to have a concept that light is a thing, that's a very tricky concept. And then light bouncing off of things and then going in your eye and then somehow reproducing an image, what a crazy idea, right? And then how do you make that image into anything? But by the way, if you want to learn how to do, take care of people's eyes, do eye surgery, uh, having a knowledge of how the eye works is crucial. And so this is where the medical knowledge, the, the uh, optical knowledge, and the interest in treating people in hospitals sort of comes together to give you things like a model of the pulmonary system, a model of how the eye works, so that then you can then reapply this into the medical field. And, and so it goes. It just follows sort of naturally, I guess, but um, inevitably. A few other things that they developed. Um, Hospitals, pharmacies, medical case studies, drug testing, they were big with pharma pharmaceuticals. Trade with China, this is important because another civilization they were drawing on was from China. Um, so they weren't overwhelmed. This is, when you talk about the force of the Arabic culture, they were not afraid of anybody else's culture. They didn't think, oh, we have to destroy it, and they didn't think, oh, we have to ignore it. They thought, hey, great, we'll take it. We're not threatened by anybody's culture because we know we're the best. Right, we've got it going on, and so we're not afraid to borrow, use, translate, and study anything that seems like it might be helpful to us. Right, At other times you'll see cultures that try to close themselves off from outside influences. This is always a sign of, of, of weakness or fear, or insecurity or inferiority. But if your culture is open and dynamic and says, look, I can work and look in the whole world and take the best ideas and incorporate them, well, that means you feel really confident in your cultural power and your intellectual capacity. Um, and they certainly, I mean, they had that in spades. Um, travel writing, they were some of the early best that they wrote. I mean, I should mention, speaking of translation, n almost none of this has been translated into English. It's, it's one of the sort of problems with studying the Islamic golden era is it's there. There's a lot of people who speak Arabic in the world. Um, but there doesn't, there's not been a big press to translate these texts. And so there's libraries and libraries and libraries of this amazing work, 90% of which has never been translated into other languages. Um, and the ones that have been translated, it's helpful to have French if you're going to study this, by the way, because the French have been big translators of Arabic texts. So a lot of them, ex more of them exist in French than they do in English. So, so what's a good intermediary language uh, if you can't learn Arabic? Um, then, then, then French gives you access to a lot, but again, still a small percentage of what's out there. We'll talk about why that might be. Uh, so travel histories, massive, massive histories. They love writing histories. Dubious quality sometimes, uh, but, but some of them quite good, just like today, I guess, right? You have good histories and you have bad histories, but they wrote a lot of them. Philosophy, of course, I'll talk about that a little bit in a second because it is a philosophy series. Linguistic studies, literature, educational institutions, hydrology, astronomy, and it just goes, they were, they were the leading in the world with possible exceptions of some of these in China um, for just about everything. 
and philosophy right there in the center of it because they wanted to know how does the world work. And so they had taken up the Greek philosophical studies, which we always look back to, and then added lots and lots and lots of ideas and concepts to them. Uh, there's a novel, there's actually two novels, uh, but uh, in both of them they do sort of the uh, noble savage thing. A, a, a kid is born and then is immediately like lost in the desert and he goes to some you know, oasis where what's gonna happen, right? What happens to a human who's raised outside of civilization? It's sort of Rousseau 700 years earlier, right? Does, it does, does this human being grow to be moral and upright and just? Or will it be an animal, a barbarian, a nothing? Um, and anybody knows uh, Descartes' question, so Descartes' theory of Cartesian dualism, right? You, people probably heard about this. It's the notion that you have the mind-body split. But part of this comes from the notion of, he asked himself, imagine an evil demon was running the world, and you had no way of knowing whether or not what you were experiencing was true or false, because it could be misrepresented to you by this evil demon, all-powerful. What, is there anything you could know for sure? And he said, uh, I think, therefore I am, cogitu ergo sum, which is to say, I have to know that I exist and think, or else there's nothing to trick. So the foundation of all knowledge is that self-awareness and self-thinking. It's the mind, the mind, the mind. Um, it's not clear that Descartes had read the Arabic text or knew of them, but that argument had been argued for several hundred years in the Arabic philosophical texts prior to him articulating it. Probably he hadn't because there was a break uh, in, in the tradition by the time we get to Descartes, but it certainly was already there. Materialism, what is the nature of economy? You know, all of these things had been argued at length. And so, what happens is you get this massive spread of cultural um, power all over the, well, where that map was, basically from um, Tajikistan, Baluchistan, uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Saudi Arabia, North Africa, Egypt, all the way up into Spain. And then what happens? Right? Again, if you were to look at the world at 1200 and you said in 100 years or 200 years, what will be the dominant civilization? You would almost have to say, well, it's clearly going to be the Arabic civilization. This is what's going to be going on. Um, and that would be wrong. Now, it did keep going, by the way. It's important to note that this just didn't falter. People sometimes talk about, oh, the Golden Age ended, and that was that. But you know, in 1540, something right around the 15, mid 1500s, uh, the, the Ottoman Turks laid siege to Vienna. Right, so it's not like all of the power and the organization went out of uh, the Islamic world at some magic time in 1200. But there was clearly a shift in emphasis. Uh, and so what happens, more or less, is you get the invasion of. Uh, the Mongols, and then you get a series of sort of civil wars that fragment the House of Islam, and it starts breaking off the communications between different groups, because 
It's one thing to have a war that when it's over, we're all friendly again. But if you have a war that ends with hard borders and people can't cross and it's harder to get uh, texts sent around and more money is being spent on the military than is being spent on research and the arts, all of a sudden this starts to sort of taper off and you start losing that powerful uh, impulse towards civilization, education, learning, science, math, literature, that whole, that all go together. And the ball is transferred to what we call the Renaissance. I mean, this is, this is clearly what happens. It's like, almost like a pendulum. As the Arabic world is fragmenting and, and looking towards other issues, all of the sudden, sort of the Renaissance scholars went, well, if you're just going to leave that laying in the road, we'll pick that up. Thank you very much. Uh, and so they were off and running. Um, but, so it, but it was definitely a, a, a hundreds of years transition. Again, it's always important, 1549, why are they worried? They're worried, the Europeans are worried because they think the, Mong the Mongols, the Turks, are going are to take over the place because they still had really great technology. And as late as 1600s, 1700s, um, there's a great book by the French ambassador to Isfahan, which had become a central and important city. And at that point, the, the, there was a phrase in Arabic that said, or Persian, that said that Isfahan is half the world. It had become a center of trade and power. And the ambassador of France goes and writes a, a letters back, which has been collected in a fascinating book, um, in which he says, yeah, probably not going to come back. Thanks very much. France is nice and all, but you've never been to Isfahan, right? Like this is this. These people have got it going on. So, you know, even six, seven hundred years later, in the 1600s, 1700s, this, this cultural, intellectual, artistic power is still going, but clearly on the wane. And so, um, yeah, trying to encapsulate all this is just virtually impossible. Um, so you have this four or 500 year spread where complete, continuous delivery of important texts, important translation, scientific breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs, astronomical discoveries, engineering development, that sort of falls away from our awareness. It doesn't go away, of course, because it's still all there. But why does it go away from our awareness? And this is important to think about when you think about the development that we're going to see when we get to uh, the Renaissance. Because when you get the Crusades, you don't move to a place where you're going, oh, here's this neighboring civilization. We, we should talk to them and share things for mutual benefit. You decide these people are a terrible threat, and they've got the Holy Land, and we want to kill them and get it back. And so it's weird to say this, but I would say, roughly speaking, our attitude towards Islam was framed by the Crusades to this very day. It, 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 just, it just seems like we, we decided that was there, a threat, they're terrifying, they're awful, they're powerful, which they were very powerful, and so we should kill them and take the Holy Land back. And so all of the other elements and all of the material that had been borrowed and imported and all of the influence tended to get written out of history. I don't think this was purposeful, I think it was just a cultural total outlook. Um, and that they, when you looked back, they didn't look back to the Golden Age, although, again, people like Dante uh, did, 
He knew what was going on. When you get Raphael's uh, School of Athens, if people know this very famous painting, Avicenna is in that painting. He painted in Avicenna into the School of Athens, which is hilarious in a lot of ways, because you've got a painting in the Pope's private library of all the pagan philosophers in Athens, including Avicenna, who was probably never in Athens and certainly not there with Socrates. Uh, but, but, but this is, you know, what Raphael is trying to say is where does our world come from? Well, a big part of it comes from people like Averroes and Avicenna and Alkindi and Alberuni and, 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 you know, all of the rest of them. So it's not that they didn't know, but it just sort of slowly that the notion of that influence got washed away. Um, Arabic, by the way, it's not a big language that is studied in the West. Uh, it's, it's curious. People talk about imperialism and uh, you know imperialist language and the use of studying language as part of imperialism. Now, there's a certain element of this, but it's important to note historically that one of the reasons that scholars studied Arabic originally was because they were terrified the Arabs were going to invade them, because the Arabs were, of course, trying to invade. Um, and so they wanted to learn the language. Of, of this incredibly powerful civilization that was on the border. And it seems like as the threat sort of waned, the interest sort of petered off. Well, if they're not threatening, why should we learn their language? What's the point, right? That they have something to offer doesn't seem to have occurred to people for a long, 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 long time. Um, you know, it's just, it's one of those weird notions of, oh yeah, we're gonna study ancient Latin, we'll study ancient Greek, but we won't study contemporary Arabic, which of course would give you access to this treasure trove of texts, even though it's still a living language, um, spoken by you know hundreds of millions of people. So you know that kind of strange cultural outlook that shapes uh, your view of the world, our view of the world, um, is laid down in these deep patterns. It's one of the things I'm hoping that this exploring these questions helps us with. Uh, is to understand these deep patterns in our civilization that shape our outlook and how we see the world. And so just for, uh, to depress myself, I did a search on uh, Arabic, and uh, just Arabic. I said Arabic and Islam and typed news on Google. You can do this. It's not very uplifting. Uh, what, what you'll get from the news if you search for Islam or Arabic is not an exploration of the great contributions of Islamic civilization, right? This is, this is not what is returned to us. And it's not but what's returned to us when you do the equivalent of that search since about 1400 uh, till today. You know, so for six or 700 years, we've been getting this pretty clear crusade view of this other civilization that's primarily threatening, which historically sometimes it was, um, and certainly not particularly interesting. Uh, despite, by the way, uh, uh, recurrent scholars who have been very interested and have tried to promote this with varying degrees of success. Uh, not much, certainly, uh, in the United States. Again, France much more successfully, England to a certain degree, uh, Italy um, to a certain degree. And so when you look at something like the Islamic Golden Age, I'm wondering, just a show of hands, how many people who ever learned about this in school? One, two, three, four people. Okay, a couple of people, that's nice, that's good. Um, you know, and it is a, a major cause of the Renaissance, if not the single most important one, but certainly a central one. Uh, and B, in its own right, one of the great periods of human civilization. I mean, this is, it just stands out, like a, why, why, the title of this was Why Golden? Well. 
it's one of the greatest and longest running, broadly spread periods of literacy, scientific research, um, and reduction of human pain and suffering through medical arts, the use of pharmacies, it a really humane core to this. Another thing that we tend not to think about. Um, there's these great travel logs, again I mentioned, from um, you know, ambassadors visiting Europe during this time. And they just couldn't believe it. And one talks about a, somebody had, I forget what their disease was, like skin disease or something, and the Islamic ambassador is like, oh, by the way, you know, you need to use this tincture and rub it on the skin and they'll be fine. And they're like, no, no, he's possessed by a demon. We're going to shave his head and burn a cross into it, which they did. And then he died. And the ambassador was like, that is not good. And so he's writing home going, these people are nuts. You will not believe what I just saw. I mean, truly horrifying. I think it's Cordoba, but I get it confused sometimes. It might be Toledo, but I think it was Cordoba that um, a lot of ambassadors would visit from Europe. And they were just always blown away because they're coming from these, you know, basically, if you didn't have a cathedral, very limited height buildings, mud streets, the whole just sort of ugly uh, medieval program. And they would go to Cordoba and or Toledo. They had street lights. They had cobblestone streets, they had trash collection, they had water management, they had sewage management, they had public park programs. And they were just like, oh my god, this is like a paradise. This is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen. We're just living in mud huts and look what they're doing. And so, not surprisingly, people came and said, well, let's start copying this. Let's see if we can't elevate uh, the status of our cities by copying what they're doing in their cities. So even at the level of like civic planning, uh, government organization, they were hugely influential, again, through the Andalusia uh, capitals uh, in Spain. And it's always important, I think we just passed, um, I'm trying to remember the years, I think just a couple of years ago, Spain had been Catholic longer than it had been uh, Muslim. Because we think of, oh, there was a couple of five years when the Arabs, the, the, the Islam was in control of Spain. That was like 500, right? It, it, was, it was from what, like 850 to or 860 to like 1300, right? It was a long time. And then it was only Catholic for about the same amount of time, again, just a couple of years ago. So there's a huge layering and huge influence because they're also big traders. And so that notion that you should spread trade around, make things happen. Um, finally, and, and not least in any stretch of the imagination, is the contact with China. So everybody's probably heard of the Silk Road. Um, and, and what's significant about the Silk, uh, the Silk Road is that it was a cultural and intellectual sort of stream that carried material goods, by the way, which are always fascinating, right? You get this silk, was like, oh my goodness, look, silk, and, and porcelain, and, and all this rare goods from the Orient, which was not just China, it was sort of everything over there. The Europeans, everything that's over there. Um, and so the capacity for uh, the, the Islam and the House of Islam to translate and carry over not just their own civilization and Persian civilization and Greek civilization and Roman civilization, 
but also to connect it to Indian um, and Chinese civilization. This is where Europe started getting a hint that there was a bigger world out there, that it wasn't just sort of uh, slack-jawed barbarians over the rise, right? That there's serious civilizations, interesting material culture, art, letters, learning, all over the place. Um, and so then, of course, we don't know why it started. We know why it's golden, I hope. Uh, but why did it finally fail? What, how did it lose its impulse? Again, this is hard to say. Fragmentation, cultural deterioration, wars, uh, shift of emphasis. When the Ottoman Turks took over, they were, they were sort of interested in the arts, but they were really interested in centralization. And so this happened in the Roman world as well, by the way. When you centralize all the power in one place, it sort of chokes everything off, right? So a, a, a world that had, a, for, for hundreds of years, had many, many, many cultural centers, all of a sudden, a lot, not all, but a lot of that power and interest and money and investment and education got centered, um, was moved and, 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 and localized so that the, um, so in, importantly, you know, Byzantine Empire and Constantinople, right? Big history there, but then all a lot of the outlying provinces die off, intellectually speaking. A lot of the money is sucked out. A lot of the interest goes away. If you were somebody and you wanted to be someone, you only had one place to go, more or less. I mean, it's an exaggeration. But anytime you get that kind of very powerful centralization, it tends to have a dampening effect. Um, and then there's the question of things like, uh, there's been studies that look at things like watches. Uh, Arabic world had everything, but they never really developed things like the watch. And at some point, the intellectual, uh, mathematical, philosophical capacity did not get translated into things like watchmaking. They had everything that you would need to do that, but they, they didn't. It seemed to be very much this aristocratic idea that if you work with your hands, you're a peasant. And so real scholars work on metaphysics and language and literature and poetry. They don't work on watches. This is very common in ancient history, but it seems to have been a barrier to uh, significant uh, like engineering progress, even while they're making incredible mathematical and scientific progress. So it's this interesting cultural biases and shifts. Uh, in any case, what we're talking about here is one of the most important chapters in, in world history. And a lot of what we have that comes from the Renaissance was a seed that was planted um, and carried from the Islamic Golden Age. And so that's why I said I had to go Dark Ages, and then I had to go the Islamic Golden Age, which is basically running parallel, more or less. And then you can go Renaissance, because without the Islamic Golden Age, the Renaissance makes no sense. And so, if, by the way, I've read a lot of books on the Renaissance, and many of them start with this very question. Wow, how did the Renaissance come out when you know, there was all these isolated monasteries and not very much? And they always mention a little bit, like, oh yeah, there were these few Arabic scholars in Cordoba, and they were translating things, and that was nice. Um, but boy, how did the Renaissance come about? Isn't that amazing? Well, it's like, well, it wasn't nice, it was like hundreds of years of tracks and translation and knowledge was transferred um, and grew and had an opportunity to grow in a new environment that was Renaissance Europe. So next time we'll turn to the Renaissance, 
But this time, uh, why was it golden? Because holy cow, for four or 500 years, one of the most extremely productive periods in human history. So we should all learn Arabic and start reading these amazing texts. Thank you very much.